This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookends. Kia ora, welcome to Bookends with Moran Rush and Ruth Todd. And uh, I had never read much about Ernest Rutherford, I must admit. I think I know quite a bit from hearing different stories from different people. But uh, Maria Gill has written Ernest Rutherford, Just an Ordinary Boy, and wonderful illustrations by Alistair Hughes. And she does so well for junior readers, you know, younger readers, doesn't she, with are sort of our heroes in New Zealand of women and men and she must have about, I don't know, 40 books she's written now. That's a fair number. (laughs) (laughs) My book is completely different. Um, Architectural writer John Walsh has been down in Ōtutahi and he's put together a very useful walking guide. John Walsh is a very accomplished architectural writer. He's edited Architecture New Zealand and um, another a number of design magazines. He's contributed to very uh, uh, quite a long list of titles about architecture and houses, and he's recently started writing walking guides or putting together walking guides to architecture in Christchurch, Auckland and Wellington. He has revised the Ōtutahi Christchurch Architecture Walking Guide um, for the very obvious reasons that a lot of new buildings are starting to appear. Um, I guess, John, that's the reason for this reprint and revision. Yeah, I think so, Moran. I mean, the opportunity came because the first issue um, had sold out. And so I guess there was a question just to... Does the publisher do a reprint or do we take the opportunity to include, as you say, a lot of new work that's happened in Christchurch in the, in the last few years? Well, having the first edition sell out tells you that there's certainly a need and a desire for the book. That must have been um, satisfying. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, as an author, I would say that. But I think that There's a couple of reasons for that. I think there's a lot of interest in Christchurch and people that go there are well aware of what Christchurch um, has been through and are interested in what Christchurch is becoming. And also Christchurch people themselves have long had a strong interest in the architecture of their city. So I think that it hits both a local audience and, and visitors who come to the city and might have just a little bit of time to walk around. And, you know, Christchurch is a very walkable city. Yes, it has that great advantage. <laughs> so you've confined yourself to the four avenues. Uh, and, yeah. uh, plus there's um, a, a sort of side trip out to the uh, university campus. Yeah, well, I figured that they're the buildings that people can see from the street. You know, they're, they're often significant public buildings or institutional buildings. So I guess if you want to look at residential architecture, you could wander through the suburbs. But I figured that that wasn't really the purview of this book. It was for people who might want to get a sense of the 
history's architectural history, and the strongest way to do that still is to walk around the significant parts of the city, all the parts of the city with significant buildings. And I think Ireland's in there because Ireland was such a an architectural moment, you know, created out of nothing when the university moved out to those green fields. And it was a strong, modernist campus, you know, very in New Zealand, almost unparalleled, sort of a, a precinct of modernism stuck out in what was then suburbia. So I think that Christchurch's geography and, you know, the sort of the bang for buck aspect, if you're an architectural tourist or just someone who's interested in the architectural history of the city, uh, leads me to, you know, confine the walks to to the central city in Ireland. Even though we lost a significant number of really important buildings um, and we're still grieving that loss, uh, you still must have had um, been spoilt for choice in a sense. So how did you go about deciding which buildings you'd, you'd put in this book? Yeah, I think it's interesting if you look at a city like Christchurch, which is rebuilding itself. So at any moment you visit there, um, your perceptions are almost going to be out of date because you go back and there's new stuff, you know, so stuff is happening quite fast now. After a period, I think, when it seemed that not, not a lot was happening, things, a lot of buildings have come on stream now and there seems to be a great, greater sense of optimism in the city and there's more things to appreciate. I think that I didn't grow up in Christchurch, so I can understand how a lot of people still have that sense of loss, and not just for great buildings or interesting buildings, but just for the ordinary buildings that form the backdrop of their lives. And I think that loss of a lot of ordinary building stock, you know, if you take areas like High Street, for example, that you just form part of the fabric of the city, and that must be very disorienting still when so much of that is gone. Yes, it is. I'm where I'm sitting at the moment is in that general area in the sort of Teara campus, and it was it was certainly an area that I knew well, and it was probably one of my definitely my area. If I had to, <laughs> if I had yeah. to locate myself somewhere, it was in that or this area and it seemed it has taken quite a while there's still a sense of of um gaps and big empty spaces still to be filled but uh it's you know entertaining to me I thought I knew quite a bit about the buildings but I still you know I didn't I, I enjoyed reading about you know the C1 Alice's building for instance uh, Art Deco designed by the person who designed the blue baths up in Rotorua yeah a place I went to as a child so there's all those great links that you've um, highlighted in your in your text yeah well I I think it's an opportunity to tell a story too about the building or sometimes about the people that have designed or built the building, you know, and what their circumstances were and who they designed the building for originally. Often, you know, buildings' use has changed. Um, but there's some interesting stories around the people who commissioned buildings and the very able architects that have worked in the city. And as you say, some of them, especially those that worked in the Ministry of Works, perhaps, you know, did got to do buildings around the country. Um, and they didn't you know, they didn't do an awful lot of buildings often, but they did significant ones like the clients like the Public Trust, which always did significant buildings around the country. So wherever they were in Wellington or 
Christchurch or Dunedin, they they did landmark buildings. You know, they had a pride in their buildings and in what they were, and they expressed that in their architecture. Yes, I think when you look through this book, you realise that um, the great range of architects that have contributed to the city, because it's not just Warren Amani and Peter Bevan and the Mountfords, the Cecil Woods, the the um, Hearst Seegers, all the other, you know, um, architects that were well known and uh, have well. A lot of them have lost buildings, of course, in the city. But Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, Peter Bevan, there's very little work by Peter mm. Bevan that's left in the city, a bit more by Miles Warren, um, probably because Miles and his practice did more, obviously, and more has survived. Um, I think that's true. There is a lineage in Christchurch architect, though. You can, you can trace the sort of handing of the baton over in lots of ways through you know, from Mountford and then people like Hersega, Cecil Wood, Miles Warren. I mean, the last gener- the succeeding generation often worked for the last generation, like Miles Warren worked for Cecil Wood, for example. You know, so there's a sense of continuity there that has probably been a bit disrupted and, and the architectural scene's changed as well. But you're right, there are a lot of... There are other practices that sometimes don't get as much attention, especially in the modernist period. You know, practices like Hall and Mackenzie, who are busy out of Ireland and around the city, are very able. Um, probably their reputation tends to be a bit obscured by the, the rise to prominence of Warren and Marnie in the city. But they were, you know, they were, and, you know, Henning Hansen, um, Minson and Dines, who did the Coca building, another really able group of architects practicing in the 1960s and 70s. Yes, probably one of my favourite city buildings, without a doubt, the Coke Building. You point out, and it's you know it's very obvious to those of us who walk through the city, um, how how much the the new buildings and the the rebuilding of the kind of uh, landscape and the what would you call it the, uh, the cityscape is now um, representing Naitahu and how important that is in in the rebuild of the city. Yeah, I think so. I think that it struck me that um, their influence um, as a client is becoming strong in the city. And I think that's the way that Māori influence in the cities will become stronger, and not just through individual buildings, but through the emergence of iwi as clients and commissioners of buildings. So that will change things because the art teacher has to respond to the wishes of the clients. That's how things work. They, you know, architects will do what the people who pay them want them to do. So if these people, if iwi groups and other Māori organisations are more active in the city, then you know, their presence will become more apparent and that will, obviously, it has an economic dimension as well, but I think their presence will just be more pronounced. Yes, and the historical um, significance of, of places in the city is being highlighted too. The, you know, the Going back to pre-European times, what the areas of the city were used for, and um, and so that's you know, hugely important to us to to recognise that, you know, Christchurch didn't start in the eighteen forties or fifties. It it had a long yeah. history as a as a place where Naitahu uh you know, gathered and fished and 
exchanged goods and 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 lived. So we have a great advantage in that, really. Now, yeah, I think so. I mean, sometimes it's it's interesting, you know, like Tapai. Obviously, there's been a conscious effort to um, to name buildings that with a name that means something locally and you know to run the the library so but i think it's going what's interesting is going deeper than that now it's going into the actual design um collaborations between maori designers and architectural practices um so i think it's becoming a deeper process and i think that will only increase not just in christchurch but throughout new zealand Yes, is something that, of course, you highlight in this book. So, John, you're coming up to launch the book in Christchurch. Yes, on the 21st at Scorpio Books, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. And I really enjoy visiting Christchurch and walking around. I think what is one thing, if I can just go back to this sort of parts of the city that I find interesting. I think that, you know, you had this very conscious effort to create anchor projects and the precincts around them in the Christchurch blueprint. But I think what's happening now is is just as interesting and you're getting a more organic development of the city, which is, I suppose, what was always intended. But, you know, areas around St. Asaph Street, for example, and Atlas Quarter are, you know, have kind of taken on a life of their own. Um, and that's really good to see. And even the East Frame, which took a while to get going, housing along there, the sort of uh, kind of two, three-storey housing that is now going up to four or five storeys in apartment blocks, that seems to be growing apace and it seems to be successful. You know, people want to live there. And I think it was a, there was an issue for quite a while about, you know, trying to woo people back to the central city. And, of course, you can only do that if you design places that people want to buy and want to live in. Great. Well, we look forward to having you up here and thank you for revising this book. It's called Autotahi Christchurch Architecture. It's a walking guide. It's um, written by John Walsh. It has photography by Patrick Reynolds and it's published by Massey University Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Maria Gill is a name that's well known to lots and lots of young people and schools and any educational work that's done for young people, especially looking at the famous people and the not-so-famous people um, who've been New Zealanders heroes, she's called them a lot, and she won the Margaret Mahi Book of the Year and she, in 2016 with Anzac Heroes, I think it was, and then she's been in storyline notable books for ages and how, I don't know how many you've written, Maria, but welcome. Thank you very much. It's 60 books. 60 books. <laughs> I can't believe that, but I can when I think about them all, and I've talked to you about some of them before, but this was a special one for you, because um, how did you get to do it? And where, well, where did you do it? Um, well, the exciting thing was, is I thought about doing writing this book, and then uh, the Christchurch Arts Centre had um, 
opened up applications for people to apply for a residency uh, in an apartment at the Arts Centre where it's actually where Ernest Rutherford went to university and so it was a wonderful opportunity and I was really excited to get accepted into that residency programme. So for three months I immersed myself in Ernest Rutherford uh, environment, you know, like I visited their his den regularly, uh, sat in his lecture hall and pretended I was there with him listening to lectures and walked along Hyde um, Park um, and, you know, he, he would have gone backwards and forwards every day to his lodgings and so, uh, not Hyde Park, uh, oh, I'm having a, a mind blank on the park that, um, Hagley Park. Hagley Park, yes. <laughs> no, sorry. Not in London. <laughs> no, Christchurch. <laughs> yes, and uh, so it really helped me um, write the story. It was a fantastic environment to um, immerse myself in, to, you know, get a feel for his character and uh, what he went through. Well, that must have been such a thrill. I, I mean, I uh, took all my grandchildren in the earlier days when um, I haven't been lately to the den, but uh, they loved going in there and hearing his lectures and hearing people speak, um, you know, and his sort of initial time. I didn't ever know much about him as a young boy, but you have incorporated so much in this book. It's um, absolutely marvellous, and I must mention Alistair Hughes, from Nelson, who um, did the um, illustrations, and he writes books as well, and he designs graphics, and um, he runs under the name of Shoreline Creative, I think. So what a combination you two are, because um, there are full pages of, you know, they're double pages. Beautiful illustrations. Yes, Yes. and they just just go so beautifully with your text, too, and... uh, uh, it's a wonderful book, and um, I hope every school library will get a copy. And um, and lots of you looking for presents for younger children, probably. Um, what would you say? What age group? Um, I think as young as six, um, right up to twelve-year-olds, intermediate age, definitely. Um, it would be a good lead into a subject on uh, a science topic uh, at that older age group, but it, it's got a really good underlying message about not giving up, because um, Ernest Rutherford when he uh, wanted to go to high school, in those days you had to pay to go, and he was from a family of 12 brothers and sisters, so he had to apply for a scholarship, and he failed that first time, and so he had to wait another year, study really hard, and he finally got into Nelson College, and then the same thing happened when he came to the end of his education there. He wanted to go to university, failed the first scholarship, had to work hard the next year to um, apply again, and um, finally got in, and and then it even happened to him a third time. So it's a great message about not giving up uh, on your dreams and persevering with them. Yes, that's the piece that really appealed to me because I didn't know that at all. Um, I sort of, you know, I knew about him when he came to Canterbury University, but that was it. And then, of course, he spent so much time overseas, didn't he? Yes. Uh, from when he was basically 21 years of age onwards. Mm. He came back to marry his childhood sweetheart, um, who he had met while he was lodging at uh, Canterbury University and took her back to Canada and then on to England. So, yes, he had a really interesting life. And so tell me what he's most famous for. Well, um, it's um, about splitting the atom, which was 
you know, like it was a huge thing back then. And uh, even during the war, he uh, helped discover methods for underwater detection of submarines, which was, you know, crucial at that stage. And he invented the Geiger, Rutherford Geiger tube with um, other young scientists. And he also um, transmitted wireless signals over 800 metres. He was the first to transmitted that far, so he was the first in the world to do that. And he probably the thing he was most famous for was coining the terms alpha and beta rays for radiation. He discovered that there was two, and then there were three rays um, within radiation. So uh, he even uh, found the principles of smoke detectors. So a lot of the stuff that he invented back then enabled us to go on to have things like smoke detectors and... and uh, uh, x-rays and uh, uh, even phones and everything like that. All that technology had to begin somewhere and he was the person who, along with some other scientists, because they were advancing it as well. So what, that new, that what, technology. what time, when did he, he died in, in the 20th century, didn't he? But he was born earlier. Of course, 1871. 1871. He was born, mm. and he died in 1937. He actually shouldn't have died when he did. It was a, it was very sad actually because he had a hernia that um, uh, anyone else, you know, like it would have been able to be operated on, fixed. But uh, they, because he was a baron, they had to wait for a lord doctor to come and operate on him, and the doctor couldn't get to him straight away. So by then, it advanced so much that it killed him basically so it's really tragic that he died when he did because it, you know, today it would never have happened. No, and he still had so much to give I imagine Yes. You've, you've got a double page in uh, his book, An Ernest Rutherford, Just an Ordinary Boy, which you've written and um, it's got four, one, two, three, four, five scientists including mm. Ernest Rutherford is to the atom um, and Albert Einstein is to relativity Charles Darwin is to evolution, Isaac Newton is to mechanic, and Marie Curie is to radiation. He's up there, isn't he, with the world's best, and um, it should be perhaps, you know, more known in New Zealand? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, he's on a $100 bill, but some children Uh, may know who he is, which is a real shame. Yes, he was buried with a lot of those very famous um, scientists, and like this. The, considered the greats, and, and he's up there with them, and so it's a, a shame uh, he isn't known more. So I'm hoping that lots of schools will buy this book and um, introduce this incredible scientist to children who they may not have heard about. And before. who may be inspired to carry on with science, which yes. would be a good thing, because we never have enough of those people, do we? No. To finish, I just want to mention that Maria and Alistair came down to Christchurch on the 4th of March, back to Otatahi, to the Rutherford's den, for the launch of this delightful story for younger readers. In the audience, amongst young, keen science students and parents, was John Campbell, Christchurch historian, who wrote an in-depth biography of Rutherford Scientist Supreme in 1999, and he was thanked for uh, his expert help with the manuscript. Alistair had showed examples of how he went about drawing and painting Rutherford as a young boy, then a man, and finally, as a very much older man, and passed round for the students to look at examples of some of the illustrations in the book, which are just wonderful. 
a young student then was then asked to dress up as Ernest and uh, take part in a small experiment. The whole launch was full of interest and uh, loved being there for it, and I was most impressed with the knowledge of the students. Um, they seemed to ask really intelligent questions, so it was be great. It was really great to attend the launch. Ernest Rutherford, just an ordinary boy, by Maria Gill, and illustrations by Alistair Hughes, is published by Upstart Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM ninety six point nine.